The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Uh, it's good to be here today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We got a lot of Rafis in the house today, man. Man, the Rafi family is huge. Where's Mr. Rafi at? How many of you got? Five? Eight. Five kids, yeah. Yeah, he keeps got so many he can't remember. So I hope, uh, I look forward to the day that I've got all those grandkids running around. Well, kind of, sort of, I look forward to it. But, uh, but anyway, it's kind of cool to see a big family uh, here with us today. Welcome to you guys. Welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. Happy Mother's Day to you. Welcome to those of you joining online. We're thankful that you're with us uh, again today as we jump into this series called Apocalypse. An apocalypse Sounds like doom and gloom, but as I taught last week, it's an optimistic vision of how God brings his plan for human history to a climax. And so the Old Testament writers, they were optimistic about um, this word apocalypse. That's what the word revelation means is apocalypse. And so as we look forward to the future, man, like it teaches us that we're headed toward this climactic event and it helps us to kind of have the right perspective of the things that we're doing on a daily basis and realize that the enemy is at war with us and he often tries uh, his tactic in our day and age um, is distraction and get us, getting us focused on things in the world that aren't as significant as things that are otherworldly because that's what we're really um, headed toward is this climactic event of living forever and ever and ever and the things that sometimes occupy all of our time and energy on this side of eternity begin to seem insignificant when you think in terms of what your existence is really all about. And so when we think about um, life itself, it's never fun to feel alone, right? Like, if you ever feel alone, I don't feel alone very often, but there are times I have felt alone, um, and sometimes leadership gets lonely. You have to make decisions, and you're um, leading an organization, and that can be a lonely time, but sometimes people experience a different type of loneliness and isolation where they're away from people, um, maybe, a, maybe you lose your spouse. That can be an extremely lonely time. Uh, for people, or you go through something difficult in life and you don't have family around, you've moved away, and you just feel alone. And today, as we look at John, man, um, he was certainly uh, living and having an experience where he would have felt alone. Uh, John was in prison on an island called Patmos that was about uh, 50 miles off the coast of the Aegean Sea. And it was sort of like a rock mine. And they put the prisoners out there, and they were isolated from everyone. Um, and John was there because he was preaching the gospel. And he was so effective at it that this emperor, Domitian, had him exiled to the island of Patmos. And so you can just imagine being there and, and feeling... Um, isolated from everything that was happening. Like you, I can't imagine all of the movement that was happening from the church. And John was called uh, by Jesus himself as an apostle. And there were 12 original apostles. And John has watched and known about the death of all of the rest of them. He's the only lone apostle left. 
But he's seen the church move. He's seen the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell upon the church and thousands of people in one day were saved and the church came out of the ground. And then it spread from the Jewish people to the Gentile people. And then it just started going and moving at this very rapid pace. So some significant amount of time has passed since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so all John's um, inner circle of, of apostles are gone. He's locked up for preaching the gospel, experiencing this incredible momentum in the church, and all of a sudden he's pulled away from it, and he's put on this island. And Jesus has shown up in the apostles' lives on a number of occasions in some pretty cool ways. John was among the inner circle, I believe it was Peter, James, and John, that were able to see Jesus at his transfiguration. When he took him up on the mountain, and it says that uh, all of his glory fell on him, and it blew him away, man. Like, really what happened in that moment was uh, the, the robe of flesh that Jesus was wearing was lifted, and these three apostles were able to see Jesus in all of his glory there talking with Moses and Elijah. And John writes about it um, in his gospel. Uh, he at another time after Jesus was crucified and was feeling very, he was feeling very lonely at that time, and it was before the Spirit had come, and he and, and Peter and several of the other apostles, they went fishing. And they had fished all night with no success, didn't catch any fish, and early in the morning, a gentleman was on the beach, and he was cooking a meal, and he calls out to them, throw the net on the other side, and they do, and they haul in a whole load of fish, and John recognizes it is the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat and runs, man, and it is. It's the resurrected Christ. Um, and it is before uh, he has ascended into his glorified state. He has a resurrected body, but he came and he interacted with the disciples on a number of occasions. Over 500 people claimed to have saw Jesus during this time. And, and so he would come back and, and he would appear to them. He appeared to them in the upper room one time. And told them to wait for him. And, and, and so there were several occasions. And so there are times in John's life where he was really lonely that Jesus showed up. But never had John nor any of the other disciples seen Christ in his resurrected, glorified state after the ascension. Remember the last time they saw him it was in the book of Acts in chapter 1. And um, he gives them the great commission and tells them to go and make disciples and says, all power has been given to me and um, you shall be my witnesses here in, in Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. And then he ascends and they watch him, man, and they're blown away as he goes away. And then the two angelic beings tell them, this same Jesus who you've seen ascend will return to the earth one day. And so that was the last time they saw Jesus. And John is in this lonely state. Many decades have passed since that time. A lot has happened in the church. There's a lot of false doctrine that has had to be corrected. Um, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of organization. There's a lot of taking care of the needs of the people. There's a lot of discipleship happening. John is the last apostle, and now he is locked up in prison 50 miles off the coast by himself, alone. And Jesus comes to see him. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. 
because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches listed there. There were, much more than, there were many more than seven churches, but seven in apocalyptic literature is always the number of completeness. And basically, these were very influential churches that this letter was to go to them. It would go to one, and then it would be circulated around to the others. And, and it would be copied, and manuscripts would be given, and it would be circulated around to other churches. And that number seven means it's for OPCC too. Like it is for the church. And he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, Zechariah has a golden lampstand um, vision as well. And John is building on that. Man, the Lord is he's expounding. He's exposing John to more. He's revealing him to, to more to him. And the, and the seven golden lampstands, they are the seven churches. They are to represent, they're symbolic of the seven churches that were just mentioned, as well as all of the, the church globally even today. And it's important that they're the lampstands. They're not the fire. They hold the fire. What is the fire? Jesus is the fire. He's the light of the world. And so John says, in this vision, man, when I was there in the Lord's day, and I was longing to be back with my brothers and sisters, and in that Lord's day, man, he's saying, I was longing to be in church and and. And this would be interesting for you. Let me toss this out. A lot of times people say, well, why do we have church on Sunday when it, the Sabbath was always on Saturday? The reason is, is because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And the disciples started meeting earlier on the first day of the week from the time Jesus, every week they got together and they started meeting. And so when John says on the Lord's Day right here, it's a Sunday. And that's why we have church on Sunday. And so we look at this, man, John saying, man, I was longing to be with the believers on the Lord's day. And I was there and, and I was in this, this, this place of isolation and I heard this trumpet sound, man, and I was caught up in the spirit and God allowed me to have a prophetic vision. And it was a move of God that was supernatural. And, and, and then when I looked out, I saw seven golden lampstands and those seven lampstands are a picture of the church that they hold the light of the world, that Jesus is the light on top of each of the lampstands burning in this dark world, showing people the way. And he says, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. What does that mean? Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man in the gospels. They say, why would he do that? The word in the Greek, when you look it up, it means all that a man was originally designed to be. And so it's completeness, man. And so like when we get saved and Christ comes into us and we surrender our lives to him and our sins are washed away and we're covered uh, in the blood of Christ, man, the Lord starts to help us become all that a man or a woman was originally designed to be. And we struggle in our flesh because it still remains and we're moving toward this climactic event at the return of Christ, then our, we will become, like in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, we shall be changed into what? All that we were originally designed to be. We'll take on the robe, a glorious robe that Jesus has. We will be in a glorified state as he is even today. And so, man, he says, I saw among the lampstands one like the Son of Man. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this is very important because this is a description of the high priest. This is what the high priest would wear in the Old Testament. 
And generally, that golden sash around his chest would be wrapped around your waist. And you would wrap it around your waist so that you could gird up your loins so that you could do work. So you weren't tripping on your robe. It was kind of like a belt. But in this sense, it's over his chest, and it's draped across his chest. And it symbolizes that Jesus is the great high priest. He is the one that offers the sacrifice for our sins. He is the Lamb of God. He not only offers the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And that sash is around his chest and not around his waist because the work has been done. Like it's already finished, man. And so here he is, the son of man in this robe, the great high priest with a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. What is that about? That's about like wisdom. If you read the Proverbs, it says in the Old, uh, in the, uh, old King James language, I think it calls it the hoary head, right? H-O-A-R-Y uh, is how you spell it. And it means a gray head and is a sign of wisdom, all right? God bless you, Ernie. Very wise man. And so as you take on gray hair, don't resist it. It is a sign of wisdom, is what the word says. And so he, is, he has all wisdom. And it says that uh, his eyes were like blazing fire. What does that mean? It means that he could see all. He is omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. He is able to accurately look into the life of every individual and his eyes penetrate. Nothing is hidden from him in all of creation. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. What does that mean? It means that he, uh, he is uh, uh, ready for judgment. His feet were hard and ready for the judgment that needed to take place. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. If you've ever been around a great waterfall or a dam where they have all of the gates open and you hear all that water rushing down and the roar of it, John says his voice was booming like that so that all creation can hear him. It says that, in his right hand, he held seven stars. The right hand would be a symbolic of two things, one, protection, and two, use. If you're right-handed, again, obviously, if you're left-handed, it wouldn't work that way, but for apocalyptic literature, the right hand is where you use things, and he held the seven stars, and that means that he protects them, and there are two um, things that that's symbolic of, is, is protecting and using both the angelic realm, so the angelic realm that will serve over the seven churches, and the messengers of the churches themselves. And so the people who were appointed at different periods of time throughout history, who served as leaders within the church, the bishops, if you will, um, the pastors, he protects them and he holds them in his hand as he holds these seven stars. And it is a sign of completeness that Jesus holds them in his hand. And he says, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And this is the Word of God. Now, in Hebrews, we have the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What's fascinating is in this passage in Revelation, we have the very same kind of terminology. But in Hebrews, the word for sword is different than here in Revelation. In Hebrews, it is a small dagger used for precision cutting, close-up battle. 
And what that tells us is that there it is used, the word of God is to use to bring about sanctification. As I apply the word of God to my life, I'm able to separate the spiritual things from the physical things in my life and do precise surgery and recognize, man, these things are not of the Lord. These things uh, are of the Lord, and I can separate myself from them as the physical, the marrow is um, a, a, a separated from uh, the bone uh, is separated from the spiritual, it says there in Hebrews. But here, there's a different word used, and it means uh, it's the long sword for battle, and it was used essentially for killing, okay? What does that tell us? It tells us that this, this word at this point in time and this vision is coming out in judgment. It is by the word of God that every man is judged, what he did with the word of God and what Jesus says. And so that sharp sword that comes out in this picture that John is having is about the future judgment that will happen at the end of time. And he says that his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. You ever try to look at the sun? You look at it, man, you just can't do it. You have to look away. It blinds you. And John says, man, I tried to look, and I, could, I just couldn't even look at him. His face was that brilliant. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the apostle. This is the apostle whom was a best friend of Jesus while he walked on the planet. This was apostle that Jesus uh, described him as, he's described as the one whom Jesus loved. He had a special relationship with John. And John says, man, when I saw him, I fell at my feet like a dead man. I was terrified. And so we see that this is the first time John sees Jesus in all of his glory. He had seen him in other ways, but this time things are different. Then he placed his right hand on me, that sign of protection, and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so like, he's like, John, it's me. He puts his hand on him and tells him to get up. And he says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Now this is a very significant verse in the book of Revelation because it's sort of an outline. He says, write down what you see, what you've seen, write about this vision that you're having right now, write down what is taking place right now, so write, write down what you've seen, write down what is happening now, and that's going to be chapters two and three as we get into the letters to the seven churches. So what is happening right now in the seven churches, and it's sort of a picture uh, of what was happening to the people during this period of time, but also it would be a picture of what's happening in the church throughout the last two millennia, and even a picture for OPCC to learn from, and even you as a believer to look at and go, okay, what are the things that Jesus is saying to the churches? Because I am the body of Christ, I am the church, as we go through the different letters in chapters two and three. And then when we get to chapter four, he's like, what is to come? These are the things that um, have a lot to do with what are, some of it I think there will be types of prophecy that is fulfilled, and a lot of it is out in the future. And right at the beginning, he's saying to him, do not be afraid, it is, it is me and I have a mission for you. I want you to write these things down. And he says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels 
of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's like, whoa. Man, it's a picture of Jesus that we don't hear talked about all the time. He's not the one that makes you want to go out and get the uh, bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot, right? Say, whoa, man. Like, that's a strong picture of Jesus. And it gives us a healthy reverence and idea of who he is and what we're headed toward. And that all the world will eventually see this resurrected Christ in all of his glory. And so as we unpack that and I show you some of the symbology, I want to give you a few things, a few takeaways that uh, I find incredibly encouraging uh, that help us. Because, man, we're going to talk about some stuff. Again, that word apocalypse for the person who has received Christ, it is an optimistic vision of the climactic event we're headed toward. For the person who has rejected Christ, it is a picture of doom and gloom. And, and what we need to understand is Jesus is saying to his body, don't be afraid. I've got you in my right hand. You don't need to worry about any of the things that I'm about to describe to the Apostle John. And as we unpack Revelation, man, he's telling us to be encouraged. He's telling John, even as John felt so isolated and alone, I'm right here, bro. I've got you in my hand. And so like we look at this and what what are the takeaways? Here's the first one. We've been called to battle. We've all been called to battle. Now, it's important to note that when, when John had the vision, he said, I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. And trumpets were used to call the, um, the, the soldiers to order, right? They're still even used today. And so the trumpet call of the Lord's voice had called him into battle. And it's important to hear the sound and join the battle. It's not, it's like, man, one of the most dangerous things that you can do as a believer is to have heard the sound and ignore the voice. It is to hear the sound and not engage in the battle. And sadly, as we look through the picture of the church in these next seven letters in chapters uh, two and three, we will see that one of the problems that happens within the church is people aren't responding to the trumpet call of God for their lives. And, and the church becomes anemic. It doesn't have power because people haven't engaged in the battle. They, they say that they've heard the voice. They've heard the sound. But there's no active engagement of the battle in their lives. And Christianity, and I'm going to tell you, Christianity is one of the uh, most miserable teachings about God if you hear the sound and don't come to battle. Like, I remember when I was younger, uh, during a period of my life between 15 and 22, I had heard the sound early in life, and I had followed the trumpet call of God, and I had engaged in the battle. But at 15, I sort of put it out of my head, and I started doing my own thing. And that life is not livable. It is not livable for the believer. It is a miserable place to be. And the greatest day in my life, man, from that period on, was when I, in, in June of 1992, man, I responded to the battle cry of the Lord again. And I haven't looked back since then, man. And my life has been absolutely fascinating to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I haven't experienced any fame. I haven't experienced any fortune. You can ask my children about that. But I wouldn't trade my experience for anyone else's. Because I've heard the battle cry, and what the Lord has done in me is unique to me. 
And the journey that I have been on has been unique to me. And he has a unique battle cry for every single person, every single one of you. And the greatest life you could ever experience, whether wealthy or poor as dirt, is to hear the battle cry of of the Lord and to engage the battle. And it's important for us to do that because there are consequences for ignoring the trumpet call of God, which we would say is the voice of God. I'm reminded of the story of King David. David is described as a man after God's own heart. He gave us these incredible psalms. Um, He was a worshiper, man. He knew the Lord. God used him early on, but he had a hiccup in his life, man. He had a hiccup where he did the unthinkable. Not King David, man. King David cheated on his wife became an adulterer, and then set up circumstances to where the person, that he, the wife that he, uh, the other man, the man's, uh, that he, the woman was married to, he put on the front lines so that he would be killed in battle, so that he could try to, try to take care of all of this stuff. Because when he did that, man, that woman that he, Bathsheba, um, she became pregnant. And so like, we look at that, and what do we learn? Why would you bring that up, Jimmy? Because in the, uh, during these times, man, kings were supposed to lead their people in battle. And the people were in battle, and the king decided to stay home where it was comfortable and cozy. And when you get comfortable and cozy, you become vulnerable to the enemy, and a target is on your back, and he will use temptation to try to take you out of the battle entirely. And so like the safest thing you can do for your family, the best thing you could do for your kids is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to engage in the battle. I recently heard a story about one of our disciple makers and they, uh, one of their kids, I won't say who it is, but I heard this story just this last week is their, their, their daughter said, Hey, I'm really proud of dad because he's leading this discipleship group and he's really committed to it. I'm really proud of him because I can remember when he didn't really want to do it. And now he's doing it and I've seen a change in him. What's happening there? Somebody has joined the battle. To join the battle doesn't just mean you come to church. To join the battle means you pick up a sword, man, and you engage in what the Lord is doing on the planet. Like we have enough churches that are filled with people. They're all over our community. But who are the people that are engaged in the battle? Is it just the professional staff that we pay and hire? You just pay me to join the battle and I'm to do all the fighting by myself along with Shay? I mean, that's all you're going to give me is Shay? (laughs) I'm so thankful for you, bro. I'm so thankful for you. But the, the, the goal is not just for uh, the people who are on staff. It's for all of us, man. And so like when we do that, the Lord is aware of it and, and we're protected. We're not as vulnerable. It doesn't mean that there are no hard things that will happen in our lives. There, there will be hard things. There will be difficult things. We're reading about a guy who knew Jesus personally. And, and, and what's happening to him is he is in isolation on the island of Patmos, man, away from all of his spiritual family But the Lord shows up to encourage him in the midst of it. And so the greatest thing you can do to protect your family and yourself is to join the battle. Here's the second thing. What the devil means for harm, God will use for good. (laughs) All the time, man. All the time. Sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances we don't understand. It feels like the Lord is nowhere around. Just like for John here, man. The Lord, like, where is God? There are no apostles left. And he's got me locked up on an island. 50 miles off the coast, digging up rocks. Where are you, Jesus? And sometimes life feels that way. 
It feels like the Lord is nowhere around and often attack from the enemy is happening because we've joined the battle. We often feel that way because we've engaged the battle and now the enemy is upset and so he moves in to try to discourage us and he will use circumstances and we have to realize that God is always working. I'm reminded of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was one of the uh, uh, patriarchs, uh, um, one of Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph, uh, man, his brother, you know the story that Joseph had the coat of many colors and he was like the favored child, right? And, and his brothers didn't like him. And so what did they do? They, they took him and they took his coat from him and threw him in a pit and then put blood on it and took it back to their dad and said, we couldn't find him, dad. Something must have happened to him. Here's his coat. And so they like set him up. And so they intended to harm him, get him out of the picture because he was always getting on their nerves. And he was the chosen one. And what happens is a, a caravan comes by and they find Joseph in the, in the pit. And so Joseph is isolated alone by himself in the pit and the caravan pulls him out of the pit. He's like, oh, thank you finally for rescuing me. And they take him to Egypt and sell him as a slave. He thought things were getting better, and now he's got to be a slave in a foreign country. And so he's a, a slave in a foreign country, but he's able to interpret dreams. And through a course of events, man, he interprets these dreams. He ends up getting locked, falsely accused, locked up in prison. But in time, he becomes second in command only to Pharaoh. He's the leader of Egypt. And through the course of uh, over the next four, he made Egypt a wealthy nation, by the way, because he interpreted these dreams that God gave him supernaturally. Um, he had the ability to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh put him in charge. And then he had all of the people start stockpiling grain. And then when the famine struck for seven years, all of the people from all of the surrounding nations had to come to Egypt and they had to buy their grain from Egypt. And so they were able to make money off of them. And Egypt was leveraging that opportunity kind of like the lumber industry right now, right? And, and, and Egypt became wealthy, and they were wealthy for hundreds of years. But guess what happened is Joseph died, and over the course of the next, uh, 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 I think, 400 years, they multiplied. They, they moved there as a family of 70, and after 400 years, they were in excess of a million Jewish people living in, in Israel. And then God raises up Moses, who again was in crazy circumstances, and leads them out. And it says that, that the, the Egyptians, they, the, Israel plundered the Egyptians because they were so terrified by the plagues that God had executed on them as a nation that they gave them their gold and silver. And God set up the economy for the Jewish nation of Israel through the leadership of Joseph being able to interpret that dream 400 years earlier. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And his brothers, when he moved his brothers there um, after they had to see his brothers had to go into town and buy some grain because they didn't have anything. And Joseph recognized them and he called them out and they were scared to death that he was going to take them out of the picture. And Joseph says to them in, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it's a fascinating story if you've never read it. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, the enemy will always do things to kind of get you discouraged because sometimes you feel like, man, you're saying get in the battle, but then you say, well, if I get in the battle, 
that the enemy is going to try to attack me, wouldn't I be better off just staying out of the battle and not having to worry about the enemy? That's kind of what we feel like if we're honest. No, you wouldn't be better off because you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to destruction. You're vulnerable to losing the protection of God because you're just anemic, man. And when you engage in the, uh, the battle and, and the enemy starts to engage at you, he is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. All he can do is work in the realm of tempting you in your flesh and, and leading you astray as he holds captivity to the world and uses all of the things that are distractions to get us focused on things that don't matter as opposed to focusing on this climactic event that we're headed toward. And so when you are not engaged in the battle, you end up getting led by him. But when you're engaged in the battle, you're led by the all-knowing one, and he is the protector. And God will use the circumstances that the enemy might try to set you up for the fall. God will all always use those circumstances to bring it about for good. And that's exactly what happened in John's case. John says, I was on the island of Patmos, man. I couldn't do anything for the gospel. Domitian had him exiled because he was preaching and teaching about Jesus. So he exiled him to Patmos. Jesus personally visited John, gave him the prophecy for the church. And here we are 2,000 years later being encouraged by it. The devil meant it for harm. Domitian meant it for harm. God used it for good. There's so many times in my life I can look back over historically and see where it felt like, man, this was harmful, but I look back in hindsight as the Lord brought me through it, and I see that God, as I continue to be faithful and believe, he takes me through the storms, he takes me through the trials, and he uses them for good. And so today you may be in a place where you're like, man, I don't know if I can take anymore. Just know God is working in the midst of that, and he will use it for the good of his kingdom, for the saving of many lives. So don't get down and depressed. Get busy and believe because he is among us. Like he is among us, man. The word John received is the resurrected Christ. He said, man, I looked and I saw these seven lampstands. And right in there in the midst of the lampstands was the Son of Man, Jesus. This, this, this Jesus that he is describing with all this power, with all this authority. This, like G John was able to see him. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. And blessed is he who believes when he hasn't seen. That's what Jesus said. That's what he said to Thomas. Blessed are those who believe when they haven't seen. I've never seen the resurrected Christ, but I know he's working in my life, bros. Like he's moving. And so when we're in the midst of these circumstances that feel like they're falling all apart, we're in the midst of a pandemic and the economy is like crumbling around us. The Lord has been through greater things. And he is among us. <laughs> When it feels like politically our government is totally lost. Amen. He is among us. He's seen worse. And he will always be among us. And so what is he looking at? And he's saying, man, look, I'm the light of the world. I'm the high priest who did work. I'm the wise one, the all-knowing one, the judge, the logos, your protector. And I am among you. Paul says, what then, in Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against me? Can death? Can famine? Can financially hardship? Can my health depleting be against me? Who can be against me if God is for me? No one. He is among us. And so like when we go through difficult times, we need to be reminded the Lord is among us. I may not see him, but if I watch, I can see his work. I can't see the wind, but I can feel the effects of the wind. 
Isn't that what Jesus said to Nicodemus? That's what it's like for all who are born again. They can see the Spirit of God moving in their lives. But that is only reserved for those who are engaged in the battle. Like you got to be able to recognize that the Lord has called you into something. You respond to that trumpet call. You respond to his voice. And then you begin to realize how frequently he is showing up among you and the message he has for you as he is among you is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's the message of the Lord. There's no need to fear for he is among us. And not only is he among us, he creates spiritual family. If we go back to the opening verse and he says, I, John, your brother, your brother and companion. Companion in what? In suffering, in kingdom, and in patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He's like, I, your brother, I'm your companion. We are spiritual family. So Jesus is not only among us spiritually, he creates spiritual family so that we can see him physically. As you hear me preaching and teaching the word of God today, you are seeing Jesus. Like he lives in me. And so like it's, it's to help your faith. And that's why the foolishness of preaching is used. In the, in, and Paul says he chooses to use the, the foolish things of the world to, to confound the wisdom of the world. And it is through the foolishness of preaching the proclamation of the gospel that people come to this place of being set free from their sins because they discover the truth. And so you're witnessing, I'm here. Why am I here? For the equipping and building up of the saints. And so I am the body of Christ. You saw him when you came in this morning and, and somebody greeted you and said, welcome to OPCC. You'll see him if you go down and pick up your kids. There are a host of volunteers down there ministering the gospel to your kids and you will see Jesus down there. You will see Jesus if you go in the back as the offering is taken. There will be a few people that are counting it. You will see Jesus there. You will see Jesus all over if you just open your eyes. And so he didn't just say he's among us spiritually. He said, I've given you spiritual family. And John is reminding us of that. Don't be afraid. You're not alone. You don't need to fear anything. You don't need to fear people who come against you. You don't need to feel death. You don't need to feel or fear reproducing. And a lot of times we do. The Lord calls us to go ye therefore and make disciples. And we're like, whoa. Me? Yeah. He didn't say, hey, I want you to pick out a few people and hire them on staff at my ecclesia and tell them to go make disciples and you finance it. He said, go make disciples. Who? All of us. But that's intimidating to us. So we go, man, I don't know if I can do that. You don't need to fear anything. You're not alone. You've got spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ who will come alongside of you and help you. You've got people in the kingdom who want to grow, who need to grow, who need to have somebody help them grow. And as you engage in the battle, then the Lord will become the protector that provides everything that you need in order to make a disciple that can make a disciple. And what happens is the kingdom of God begins to spread. Even though the apostle was isolated on the island of Patmos, the gospel just kept moving. And it still moves today. And God gives us the body of Christ to accomplish it. Sadly, today the church is drunk on experience and feeding people with consumerism. The best kids ministry, the best worship ministry, the best building, the best facilities. That's what makes a great church. No, it doesn't. 
What makes a great church is the gospel and the people of the Lord listening to the trumpet call of God and responding to the gospel and engaging in the battle and making disciples and revival begins to happen. You want to fix America? Take a look at yourself and say, am I making disciples? Am I doing the work of the Lord? That's the only way to turn this country around. That's what made it great in the first place. I guarantee you it's not going to happen in Washington. The only way to fix America is for the church to have a revival, a spiritual awakening that spreads like wildfire, that the people of God start talking to Jesus, and then they start listening to Jesus, and they start doing the work of Jesus. And as they do the work of Jesus, their kids will recognize that they're engaged in the battle, and those kids will want to engage in the battle. And instead of the parents telling the kids, hey, do what I say, they'll be watching, do what I do. That's what this dedication was about. Don't just tell your kids about Jesus, man. Show them what it looks like to follow him. And as you do, you begin to have an awakening in the home. Do not be afraid of anything. Fear nothing. The big idea is that Jesus holds the keys of death and life. That's what he says. Don't be afraid, man. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What does that mean? Jesus alone turns our life on and turns our life off. That's why we don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear anything, man. I'm going to live my life for the gospel, serving Jesus, and he might turn the key off tomorrow. Greater for me to be with Christ than to be alive. For me to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, man. If he turns the keys off in my life tomorrow, it is well with my soul. I couldn't get more out of life than I'm getting. Like I just, like I, 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 I'm blown away at the joy of the Lord that floods my soul. And what I want you to hear is what he's using me to try to proclaim to you in the, in the gospel is you will be blown away too if you will engage the battle. Don't try to do Christianity half-hearted. It doesn't work. Engage in the battle. Let the Lord roll out of your life and realize he has the keys to when your life started and he has the keys to when your life will stop. And this resurrected picture that we have of Christ is the one that is ruling our life. Nothing has a hold on me, for I believe in the risen Jesus. Like I can see him. I can see him. Can you see him today? <laughs> can you just close your eyes? Can we just close our eyes for a moment as the body and get a picture of Jesus in all of his glory? Can we just realize that Jesus is among us this morning? You know that Jesus is going to ride home with us today. He is among us. We are a part of the seven lampstands that hold the light of the world. He is in us. The resurrected Christ loves us, he owns us, and when we see him in all of his glory, <laughs> like we want to be ready, guys. We don't want to be, when we face the resurrected Christ, we want to be with these pathetic excuses. Well, I didn't know, you know. Like one thing I'm going to do every week is I'm going to teach you so that you know. 
You don't want to be like, man, I was afraid. You want to be like Jesus. I did all that I could with all that you gave me. And you're, going to know, you're still going to feel like it's not enough. But he's going to look at you and say, well done. Well done, faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Like, I don't know, like, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer here. As you picture that resurrected Christ, if you've never met him and maybe the Spirit is trying to get a hold of you and, and maybe you want to come to him and receive salvation, what does that mean? It means that you believe in the Lord and you call upon his name. You confess that you're a sinner, believe upon Christ and engage the battle, man, and he covers your sin. And so like, I, I can't, like, it doesn't mean that you meet with me and I pray over you. That's not what it means. It means you meet with Jesus and you pray to him. You ask him to forgive you and you make him not just savior, but Lord and savior. You got a picture of him on the cross and you got a picture of him coming back. That's what revelation is about. Is so that we don't get unhealthy and we don't, we're not all about grace, man. Just grace, grace, grace. We got to be about truth too. And to realize that he is returning. And as the bride of Christ, we live with anticipation of his arrival. If you make a decision today, I hope you will tell me. I hope you will proclaim it. Confess with your mouth so that I can celebrate with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for these people. I thank you for the church. I thank you for John. I thank you, Lord, that you set him down in prison. You isolated him so that you could show up and reveal these things to him so that we could learn from them, Lord. 2,000 years later, that we could learn and realize that you were coming, Jesus. And we're closer now than we've ever been before to your arrival. And Lord, let us live with the anticipation like you will come back today and let us prepare and work like you're not coming back for another hundred years. <laughs> let us be busy about the kingdom with the sword of the word in one hand and our eyes always looking upward to the eastern sky anticipating that the heavens will split. Lord, take us on a journey as we continue to study this prophetic book about what we're headed toward. Enlighten us in ways that we've never been enlightened, that we might be blessed as you said we would when it is read aloud and proclaimed and when we take it to heart. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.